The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Katie Martin. She is the executive director of the Food Share Institute for Hunger Research and Solutions based in the greater Hartford, Connecticut area. She received her PhD in nutrition science and policy from Tufts University's School of Nutrition Science and Policy, and she is the author of a new book titled Reinventing Food Banks and Pantries, New Tools to End Hunger, published by Island Press. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So welcome, Katie. It's my pleasure to be here. You know, your book is so user-friendly, and it's about a topic that has grown certainly over the span of our careers. And you mentioned in the book that you wrote this book during COVID. And COVID, as you mentioned, has truly illuminated many more fissures in our nation's food system. And we'll dive into that. But I want to start out simply by asking you, how did you become interested and involved in the hunger world, the food bank, food pantry world? Yeah, thanks for asking. I came into the field of nutrition from a different approach. I came from a political science background. When I was in college, I had a summer internship with my congressman, Tony Hall, from my hometown of Dayton, Ohio. And he has been a lifelong advocate for anti-hunger work domestically and internationally. And that summer internship really honed my interest specifically on hunger. And I then interned over the summer for the Food Bank for New York City, visited over 100 food pantries and soup kitchens, and then chose my graduate degree and my career path to focus specifically on food security research and programming. Mm. So you have spent your career researching food insecurity. You've done hundreds of interviews. You have had hundreds of conversations with individuals who are struggling to get enough food for their families. And I am sure that if you're like me, there were a few standout conversations that really stopped you in your tracks. Do you want to share any of those? That's a great question, too. I have many, many stories I could share, some that stick in my mind, talking with a young man in Hartford and asking about, you know, I use the standard USDA food security module, asking the questions about food security and asking about the food that he had been eating recently. And he said, you know, the doctor keeps telling me that I should eat healthier food and he doesn't know that I can't afford it. Mm. And, you know, how hard is that? So often those of us in the nutrition field in particular, we focus on providing education and helping to teach folks about healthy eating. And I think what we, we need to pay attention to is often it's about access and affordability in addition to just education. Oh, I could not agree more. 
after being in this career for 40 years, I think I'm pretty much convinced that most people know how to eat well. I mean, they're in environments that don't support healthy eating, but given the choice, and as you talk about in your book, the dignity of choice, mm-hmm. I think people know exactly what constitutes healthy eating, but maybe they don't have access to the skills of the cooking skills, I think, are really important. But yeah, the nutrition education part, maybe we've focused a little too much on that. You know, one thing I want to do, Katie, before we launch into some of the nitty gritty points that you make in your book so beautifully, is I want to talk about the difference between food banks and pantries, because I was far along in my career before I really understood the difference. So tell me, what is the difference there? It's important for those of us who are concerned about the issue of hunger, who have new awareness about food insecurity because of COVID, for those of us who donate food to fight hunger, which is pretty much all of us, right? To understand the difference in this massive charitable food system and I highlight this in the book just because it's it's intriguing to me how most people that I meet have been involved in one way, shape, or form with this charitable food work, but don't know the difference. So a food bank is a regional organization that often serves a set of counties, sometimes an entire state, and they are the place where they receive donations of food. So basically the food is deposited into the food bank that then distributes food to a network of local community-based food pantries, community kitchens, meal programs, mobile programs that then serve food directly to individuals. And I think the distinction is important just because if we want to think holistically about how we tackle hunger, we, we really need to be aware of the different players who are involved and how they make an impact. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I remember a friend of mine actually had been laid off. She had a job at the university. She was laid off. She went to her local food pantry and she was given a box of little more than candy bars. Mm. And she said, oh, Melinda, you know, I want to show you this. You're not going to believe it. So talk to me about how food is distributed from the food bank to the different pantries. Who determines the quality of food accepted and distributed? I'm sure it differs nationwide, as you explain in the book, but how can that happen? Right. So I like the adage that when you've seen one food pantry, you've seen one food pantry. Mm -hmm. And unlike the federal nutrition programs like SNAP, school breakfast, school lunch, WIC, that are highly standardized and regulated by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, food pantries and food banks are community-based nonprofit organizations. And they typically have been started by well-meaning volunteers and have grown in number and scope and size over decades. I think increasingly food banks as part of the Feeding America network are sharing best practices. Uh, There's more of that going on, but at an individual food pantry, those kinds of decisions of what type of food is accepted and how it's distributed vary tremendously. And it's in many ways, the motivation for why I wanted to write this book was because I've seen some 
really phenomenal, terrific food pantries that are doing amazing work. And sadly, I've seen other traditional food pantries that I feel like are a little bit behind the times and are providing food that is not of great nutritional quality and is sometimes presented in ways that can help reinforce the shame and humiliation of going to get food. Mm -hmm. You talk about the language that we use when we talk about food banks and food pantries and this idea that there is an emergency, there's urgency, people are hungry, we want to get them fed. You have a long list. Well, you have a great graph, actually, in the book that talks about how we can change our language. And I think that changing language is at the heart of changing policy because our language influences how we think. And yours is the first book that I've seen really speak to that. And it's one of the most critical components of your book, I think, in addition to all the beautiful action steps that you have and the stories that you share. And we'll dive into a little bit more of that later. But tell me how you landed on this and why you chose to focus on changing our language. I think it's critical. Words are powerful and they inform not only our programming and the way we do our work, but how we think about the work and the impact that it has. So you touched upon emergency and this is, it's critical. So when food pantries and food banks were started primarily in the early 1980s, it was really meant to treat an emergency. It was meant to be short-term for people who were newly unemployed, who had lost benefits because there were cuts to the food stamp program back then. No one dreamed that we would be providing free food in 2021. And it's clear that food insecurity is a chronic, persistent public health problem. And there's plenty of data to show that people who visit food pantries do so on a chronic basis. And calling it an emergency is a misnomer. And this matters because when we're thinking about an emergency situation, and I use the example of a natural disaster, a hurricane, an earthquake, it's a true emergency and you need to therefore provide blankets and water and food to as many people as quickly as possible. And what that means is we don't plan for the future. We certainly don't evaluate our work because it's meant to be really short term. And it's all about efficiency, moving supplies as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, it's just shocking to me that decades later, many, many programs and academic researchers still use this term of emergency food programs. And the impact this has is on our programming, like I said, but also the impact that it has on individuals. So during COVID, we know that this has been more of a sense of emergency, right? This is what it feels like to be in a public health emergency. When we describe our work as an emergency response though, one of the challenges I have seen recently is that people feel like it's not for them. Like if you're needing food on a chronic basis and people describe it as an emergency, you may be less inclined to seek help and it may create a barrier because there must be other people who need it more than you. So the term emergency, it's just outdated. And I think we could 
go a long way to, to shift that mentality away from an emergency response towards one of more empowerment, but also even just calling this the charitable food network. Mm-hmm. You also talk about how we might focus on total pounds of food distributed rather than the nutritional quality of those pounds. And, you know, that speaks to our agricultural policies as well. We're so busy talking about quantity, Mm -hmm. even with all the waste that we have, but we're so focused on quantity and poundage, but we have lost sight of the importance of the quality of those food items that are distributed. Right. And a lot of that, thankfully, is changing. Increasingly, Mm -hmm. there are food banks and even food pantries that are uh, creating nutrition policies. We have new nutrition guidelines for the charitable food system to rank food nutritionally so that we can determine whether a food is green, yellow, or red in a stoplight system based on saturated fat, sodium, and sugars. So there's a lot of really great work that we can use. And these are tools to help increase the supply and demand for healthy, nutritious food. But our metrics matter. And for a long time, and still very much today within particularly food banks, our key measure of success is pounds of food. And it's very easy to quantify and to measure. And for years, we could say that we were distributing more food to more people in the community. I'm encouraged by the fact that more donors, more funders are looking for different measures and particularly looking for outcomes instead of just outputs to look at the impact of those pounds of food on the people who receive them and particularly the nutritional quality of the food. Yeah. Let me take one break because we're halfway through. And if you're just joining us, I want to remind our listeners that you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Katie Martin. She is the Executive Director of the Food Share Institute for Hunger Research and Solutions in Greater Hartford, Connecticut. And she is the author of a really excellent book. It's reader-friendly, chock full of important stories and action steps, as well as resources. It's titled Reinventing Food Banks and Pantries, New Tools to End Hunger. The last point I want to make about language, which I think is so critical, and there are many, as I said, we could spend an hour probably just talking about the language that we use. But you refer to the way in which individuals who use pantries are called. So are they clients Or would it be better to call these individuals guests or customers, members or participants? What does that shift in language do? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, many people refer to people who go to food pantries as clients, and there's really nothing wrong with that. I think when you frame it as a matter of choice, people are choosing to come to a food pantry. And if we think of them as guests or customers who are coming to shop at a food pantry. Just as you think about those words, it conjures up notions of, you know, having a guest, inviting a guest over to your home, having a customer who comes to shop at your store. Then we can shift our attention more to hospitality, customer service. How do we really create a welcoming environment so that they want to come back? And in a food pantry setting, how do we create it such a way that we can help them get back on their feet so they won't have to come back long term? Mm. I think those types of words, just by 
changing the simple way that we describe that people who use our services can help us think about the other programs and, and the way that we provide our work. Right. And it looks like the truly successful food pantries are those that offer resources to help individuals climb out of the situation that they're in. Although you also do recognize that the causes of hunger are truly at the policy level and that food pantries, food banks, these are really band-aids to help cover the policy inequities. That's right. I use an approach in this book of not either or, it's more about yes and. Yes, there are millions of Americans who are food insecure, but they're hungry for more than just food. And we can help individuals in the short term by providing healthy food in a dignified, empowering space. And we can be advocating for systems change, advocating for progressive policies that will make it more likely that people will be food secure and not having to rely on the charitable food system. Yeah. I think we need both approaches. You write in the preface of your book that many have argued that the charitable food system takes the government off the hook from providing a strong and stable safety net. And you agree that food banks are a stark example of how our government has failed and that we need a stronger, more secure federal safety net and so on with living wages and looking at different kinds of situations that put people in poverty, like not having affordable housing or access to health care, affordable child care, etc. But you also write something interesting. You say that you think that those of us that work in the charitable food system of food banks and food pantries have taken ourselves off the hook, too. What do you mean by that? So, again, I think there has often been this either-or scenario that if And I've been so influenced by Jan Poppendike's beautiful book, Sweet Charity. And she's the one that really promoted that idea of the charitable food system just shows how flawed our federal response has been to provide a social safety net so people have access to enough food. And yet, if we only focus on the government response, what's happened is that those of us within the food banks and food pantries around the country put our heads down. We had this emergency mentality of there's so much need. We have to just keep our heads down and provide food and provide more food to more people as opposed to providing short-term food and getting involved in the political arena, advocating the government step up and do more. I think for a long time, food banks in particular were seen as really apolitical. The idea was that's outside of the scope of the work that we do. We are here to collect and distribute food. But advocating for a living wage is anti-hunger work. Mm -hmm. When we recognize that the reason that people are food insecure is not that we don't have enough food in the United States of America. It's that people cannot afford the food. Right. I couldn't agree more. I had the curtains pulled aside and I saw a much bigger view of the hunger situation when I was early in my career. I, there was a Missouri network for hunger, and it was a social welfare organization. And there was a member of the group that pointed out that by providing charitable food, 
we also not only let our policymakers off the hook, but we allow employers off the hook who should be paying and caring for their employees who are giving them the profits at the end of the day. So there's that piece too. Thank you for bringing that up. And I think much of the the debate these days, you know, when we focus on the rise of food insecurity, particularly since COVID hit. So in this past year, we've seen this increase in what is the government's response and how can the government intervene? And we have charitable food out there. And you're right. We don't want to overlook the corporate sector, the business sector that often hires folks at just below full time so that they don't have to pay benefits. So you have people struggling with working two jobs or three jobs, but without healthcare, vacation time, sick time, et cetera. That's another, you know, we can't overlook the impact of the private sector in this work. Mm -hmm. And then getting back to a point you made earlier about the stories that you've heard, the individual who was told by his doctor, you know, he needed to eat healthier food, and he felt like he couldn't tell the doctor that he couldn't afford it. And that gets to the whole issue of stigma. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, you know, if people are struggling, it's their own fault. And you talk about the difference between empathy and sympathy and ethical storytelling. And I think that in this very approachable, user-friendly book, you bring out so many important points, this being one of them. Let's talk about ethical storytelling. Tell me what it is and how you use it. Mm -hmm. So often when we talk about hunger and food insecurity, we talk about pounds of food and millions of people and large numbers of people, as opposed to Here's an individual person. Here is her story of how she's struggling to make ends meet for her kids. It's a very different dynamic that for most of us, we can appreciate that individual's story as opposed to millions and billions of pounds and numbers. Ethical storytelling is an approach to, you know, I've encouraged our staff at FoodShare, the food bank where I work, to as we're involved in food pantries, talking with people who are receiving food at a food pantry, as they share their experiences to ask them, would you be willing to share your story with others? It's really part of a dialogue as opposed to more of a formal interview for research. This is more of we're having a dialogue and someone is telling their story and asking them, would you be willing to share your story? What I have found is when we view people who are food insecure as if we don't have a relationship with them, we can often think that must be so humiliating and hard and embarrassing. They don't want to talk about their situation. I don't want to ask. What I have found is very often people want to share their stories. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. So by asking and then taking down information from how they described it, asking if they would be willing to include their name. It could also be anonymous, maybe from the town that they're from, reading it back to make sure you got it right, and then asking if they would be willing to have you share that with others so that we can reduce the stigma of what it's like to receive charitable food or what it's like to be food insecure, to normalize it so other people realize, wow, that really could be me. 
Mm-hmm. And I think rather than inciting sympathy, walking with a person through their feelings, that empathy, it really enables us to better understand what the changes are that need to happen in order to prevent the hunger in the first place. Yeah. And that's where when we design food pantry settings to offer client choice where people can choose their own food with dignity, having space for people to interact within a food pantry setting so they can share their stories, so we can build relationships to understand what are some of the underlying reasons why they're struggling with getting enough food. Can we help connect them to other resources like the SNAP program or WIC program or affordable childcare, transportation, et cetera? How do we create those spaces so that we have an opportunity to get to know folks, to build social capital and more interactions to cross different class lines, different income, racial, ethnicity lines? Years ago, I heard Mariana Chilton speak. She's at Drexel mm-hmm. University, and she did a very interesting project with Photo Voice, helping individuals tell their stories using cameras. And her point was to show policymakers what hunger and food insecurity looks like in the community. But she spoke about trauma. And it was the first time I had ever realized that we need to be educating healthcare providers and caregivers at all levels, including food pantry volunteers, about trauma. What do you want our listeners to know about how being hungry, not knowing where your next meal is coming from, not knowing if you're going to have the same house to live in next month, how that relates to trauma-related care? Right. Thank you for bringing this up. And thankfully, there is more attention on the importance of trauma-informed care. If you think about it, for those of you who are familiar with the food security module and the questions we use to measure food insecurity, the first questions are, we worried whether we had enough food at the end of the month. We worry that we're gonna have enough food before we run out of money to buy more. That worry, that anxiety, the very nature of food insecurity is traumatic. And likewise, if you've experienced some kind of trauma, physical, mental trauma, some type of violence, you're less likely to achieve in school to be able to hold down a job, which will lead to food insecurity. So the very nature of being food insecure or visiting a food pantry, it's really, really helpful if those of us in the charitable food system have some knowledge, some background about trauma because that will help us do our jobs better so we don't cause more harm. We just have one minute. Our time together has flown. But I want to give you just a little bit of time to close with a message to our listeners. What do you want them to know about this book and your work? Thank you for helping to raise awareness about the book. I wrote this because there have been very few books written specifically for people who work and volunteer at food banks and food pantries. And I'm hopeful that this book will inspire folks to think differently about hunger and most importantly, to take action steps in their own communities to create more longer term solutions to the problem of hunger. Thank you. We've got to close, but I need to remind our listeners that you have been listening to Food Sleuth Radio. 
It is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Katie Martin, Executive Director of the Food Share Institute for Hunger Research and Solutions based in Greater Hartford, Connecticut, and for this fantastic book, her first book. It's fabulous, Reinventing Food Banks and Pantries, New Tools to End Hunger. I recommend it for health professionals and anyone who cares about our fellow human beings who are struggling with hunger and food insecurity. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. Thank you.